With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your wizards of Wikipedia. My name is Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Seigel. It's low-hanging fruit, that one, but it got the job done, right? Yeah, yeah. It was okay. And today we are going to discuss what I'm okay with saying is one of my favorite songs of the 90s. I can't even call it a guilty pleasure. I genuinely think it's a good song. I'm talking about You Get What You Give by New Radicals, a track that takes the save the world earnestness of U2 and mixes it with the soaring piano pop sensibilities of Todd Rundgren. It came out in 1998, which was kind of a weird transitional period for music, sort of the calm before the teen pop storm. Electronic beats were beginning to seriously compete with guitars as a dominant sound on the radio, and new metal was ascending from the depths of hell. And yet, amidst all this, you get this well-crafted, optimistic pop song that took shots at consumerism, the commodification of art, and celebrity culture. And unlike today, when artists are more or less expected to have a political stance and stand for something, it was unusual at this particular moment for a song as unabashedly poppy as this one to be used as a soapbox. In addition to always loving the song, I was always fascinated by the fact that New Radicals vanished soon after its release. That added an element of mystery to it for me. Like, where did this group go? And I'd always heard these stories about the main guy behind the group, Greg Alexander, as being this lost, like, Brian Wilson-type figure who played all the instruments himself and had this tremendous gift for melody, but decided it wasn't worth dealing with all the hassles of fame, which, to me, gave him this vaguely heroic yet also tragic quality. I don't know. I love my reclusive pop geniuses. Well, you know, I've never really cottoned, as they say, to people who abandon the stage for a lifetime in the studio, um, which I just think is kind of uniquely part of being a musician in the 21st century, because to me, being in the studio means spending money that you don't have. (laughs) Um, And so it always makes me like a little nervous. It's not like a fun... Like you talk... you. Paul Simon used to go into the studio without anything written and just be like, well, what can we pull together? A lot of people did that. Yeah. And it's like now if you're in a band and I've been in many, you get one day to track basic tracks and the you better be f-ing rehearsed because if you're f-ing up these takes, you're on the clock and you are literally burning money. 
then you can get into the hassle of doing vocals and overdubs and all that. And so it's, I don't find the studio to be like a particularly calming environment. The stage is though, you know, and I just don't. Well, well, there's two points about that. I think, I mean, in the XTC and Paul Simon were both, you know, studio only entities back in the eighties when stuff was selling. And, you know, the other big group, probably the most famous example of the Beatles in the sixties, another time when records were selling, but also I think, Probably at least for the Beatles, maybe a little bit of Paul Simon, it was just more of like a hassle thing too. Of sure. like, especially for the Beatles where you couldn't reproduce the kind of music you wanted to make on the stage anyway. Yes. Plus the fact that you didn't want to get assassined in some cases <laughs> right. on tour. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's totally fair. But then I just, yeah, there's some people who are like, well, the studio is my instrument. I'm like, okay, that, I'm sure <laughs> there is. But like, I don't know, man. The like last thing that I hold sacred in rock and roll is like a good rock and roll show where things seem a little bit out of control and a little <laughs> bit dangerous. And like, I don't really subscribe to the whole rock and roll as primal theater thing, but like the best rock shows feel like that. And there's nothing like that. <laughs> Full stop. So, you know, <laughs> I think that's actually really underscores a difference between what you and I appreciate of music. Cause I mean, I love, you know, Brian Wilson's pet sounds is one of my all time favorite albums. Uh, all the Phil Spector stuff. I mean, regardless of what you even say about him as a human being, yeah. I love all that like studio construction stuff. Oh, I mean, I love it. Like when I started getting into better studios and learning more about it, I really do love it. I love the, like the creative panning that you can do in a studio space. And now that we're up to Dolby Atmos, like eight channel mixing, <laughs> you can just really create these immersive physical worlds out of music. And I'm not slamming the studio. I'm just saying, or saying that I don't uh, respect it. I just, it's a money pit for me, but I just, yeah, I don't know, man, there's, Maybe it's just because I got hit with punk rock just at the right time as a teenager, but I'm just like, nope, bands go out on stage and bands play, and that's what bands do. I don't know, and that's the only way bands get to make money these days. Your streaming sales aren't going to uh, make up the cost of your studio. You better get on the road. Well, this is a funny moment to mention this, but today, the very day we're taping this, you've released a new album, oh, uh, you Patterson stop. 2 on Bandcamp. You Check it out, everybody. Stop. Um, yes, yes, I did. And uh, if we can leverage the podcast community, it's alexheigel.bandcamp.com. And it is uh, it's practically easy listening music. It's just like yeah. a, f- uh, a gentle finger-picked guitar with a lot of effects on it. So I hope people enjoy it. Jordan, do you have any other points about Greg before we jump in here? Yeah, the more I learned about this guy, Greg Alexander, the the kind of the, the mastermind behind New Radicals, the more impressed I became with him. Using pseudonyms, he pens some huge songs in the wake of the New Radicals' disintegration. Music critic Stephen Thomas Erlewine described him as, quote, the catchiest, smartest, professional mainstream pop songwriter of the early 2000s. And as we go on, we'll, you'll hear you'll understand why. Bold statement, though. Yeah, right? Uh, so I'm excited to talk more about him. Get ready to learn about what other gargantuan hits he wrote behind the scenes, his famous non-feud with Marilyn Manson, although <laughs> Marilyn Manson threatened to crack his head open like a watermelon anyway, uh, why he's earned huge props from everyone from Joni Mitchell to Bono and Ice-T, his reemergence for Joe Biden's presidential inauguration, and just how he ripped apart a mall food court for that iconic music video. So here is everything you never knew about You Get What You Give by New Radicals. (laughs) 
Greg Alexander was something of a pop prodigy, the voice and face of New Radicals. It was born in Gross Point, Michigan. He was raised as Jehovah's Witness, um, just like Prince. Now, Prince wasn't raised as Jehovah's Witness. Prince uh, converted after doing a tour with Sly and the Family Stone bassist Larry Graham's solo project, Graham Central Station. The guy I met the slap bass, yep. right? Yes. Good bass knowledge. Um, <laughs> I did play it in your That's band. That's true. Uh, Alexander was inspired as a kid by the Jackson 5 and especially Prince. He snuck into the R-rated Purple Rain movie as a tween and describes it as a major turning point in his life. He later told The Hollywood Reporter's Scott Feinberg, Let's go crazy knocked me over my head, but when I heard the beautiful ones, it was all over. It's a good one to, to lose your yeah. shit to. Dearly beloved. At that point, I knew I was going to be running away to California, which so cute. Good for him. We love that. Because, gosh darn it, the kid had a dream. He bought his first guitar as a 12-year-old and played in various bands. In 1984, he played a battle of the bands, competing against future Marilyn Manson and Rob Zombie guitarist, shred metal country extraordinaire John Five. I just want to say I find it really incredible that he faced off against the future Marilyn Manson guitarist, considering the, you what know... What will happen with... Famous yeah. incident, well, non-incident with Marilyn Manson and the lyrics to his song. I also feel... Um, confident that john five blew him out of the damn water <laughs> probably maybe not in yeah. song well they were like 14 15 i uh, think i don't know john five i love john five he's such a nerd what an incredible musician <laughs> anyway but as a teen alexander had purchased a four-track recorder and started making demos in his bedroom the sounds of detroit nearby which had this tremendously potent blend of punk r&b and rock had a marked impact on his early songs he would later say the spirit of detroit radio was powerful it's such a segregated town like legal apartheid to the point where you can feel the soul and pain and spirit in the faces he'd take his demos to school and play them for his classmates but in an effort to get honest feedback he wouldn't even tell them that he was the one who'd written them which as anyone, anyone who's tried to pull this, pull this on someone, one of their loved ones, can be a dicey proposition. Yeah, you don't, you don't really want to hear what they actually think. He told uh, Rolling Stones Andy Green in 2021 that this was part of his quote elusive search for the songs that make people happy, sad, or better yet, both at the same time. Which is a brilliant description of you get what you yeah. give, if I may yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, by 16, he's actually out in L.A. under the cover guise of visiting his aunt who lived out here. But uh, he later admitted to thinking of it as a covert research and development trip. And it apparently was very fruitful because he said he literally snuck into the Grammys where he saw all of my heroes and everything seemed within reach. Again, this is from Scott Feinberg's piece in The Hollywood Reporter. A lot of sneaking in the story. <laughs> Especially considering he snuck he's into, six five. Snuck in the Purple Rain, snuck into the Grammys. Oh, yeah, he's like six foot five, too. He must be a very, very uh, crafty man at that height to be able to make subterfuge a, a cornerstone of his approach to music. I always sort of saw him as like Billy Corgan's like sweet twin. Like they, the, yeah. the, the the bald, extremely tall, very pale. It's like, like the Simpsons episode brilliant. where he was the good twin who was locked in the attic, and he finally got out. Yeah. Billy Corgan's yeah. been the evil one all along. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so he returns home and just kind of casually divulges to his parents, "I'm running away to California this summer to be a rock star." And his dad says, 
well, make sure you're back home in September for school if it hasn't come together with that charming Michigan uh, <laughs> pragmatism. But he did pull it together, actually. He took his bedroom demos and at the age of just 16, charmed uh, music mogul Jimmy Iovini into giving him a contract with A&M Records. He's a tough guy to please. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. That's also, man, he left at 16 and was signed at 16. That's wild. How's that make you feel? Makes me feel like <laughs> Jordan. Um, <laughs> and uh, But he was 16. Because he was 16, he was underage. He wasn't allowed to sign the contract. But he was given a sort of allowance by A&M for the next two years while he hung out on the beach and just wrote songs all day. How does that make you feel, Alex? <sighs> we call that pulling a Kate Bush. <laughs> Just waiting out the clock yeah, until, until you're age yeah. to sign, yeah. Um, but in case you get what you give, didn't give it away, Greg had an idealist streak a mile wide, and it's one that remains to this day. Once again in the THR piece, Scott Feinberg asks him the seemingly innocuous question, what sort of future did you envision for yourself while waiting to turn 18 and begin your professional life? And Greg Alexander, the sweet boy, begins to tear up. That's a sad question, he says, before adding that he believed at the time that a song and a sentiment would be able to right the wrongs of the world and make people actually love each other. Oh, oh you sweet summer child. But his optimism would be destroyed, or at least severely damaged, by the business side of the music industry. What did Hunter S. Thompson say about the music industry? It seems like a good time to bring this quote up. I don't know if I know it. Oh, you don't know that one? It's tremendous. Um, Hunter S. Thompson famously said of the music industry that it is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. <laughs> There's also a negative side. <laughs> <laughs> what piece is that from? I don't remember. I just found it. It's probably something in the assorted papers from like the Great Shark Hunt or the Gonzo oh, papers. Yeah. But Greg would find out the shallowness of the trench. Uh, his first two records flopped. He released his debut, Michigan Rain, in 1989, which became a minor hit in Italy for some reason. Maybe they confused it with the Bruce Hornsby song, Mandolin Rain? Ah. So maybe, maybe. I don't just, just spitball in here. There's no bad ideas in brainstorming. Um, Purple Rain, November Rain. Yeah. It's <laughs> our favorite rain songs. <laughs> the, the, the Italians are just like, it's got rain on it. Must be a hit. Um, <laughs> Uh, but didn't make a splash stateside. And so he switched labels, signed to Epic in 1992, and released a second album, Intoxifornication, which is second to the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Californication as one of the worst album title puns of all time. Uh, Wait, uh, Intoxifornication. Information, toxification. That's a triple. That's a triple word score. That's definitely going to get you a lot of points in no, Scrabble. That's no, it's only, it's only two. It's intoxicating oh, yeah. and fornicating, but I don't know where the where the Asian comes from. Maybe vacation. I don't know. Gre Jamie, fornication. Jamie, can we get Greg to grant us uh, his once in a decade interview so we can ask him about that? <laughs> um, Greg later said that that record was barely promoted since this was the height of grunge and he, quote, refused to look like Eddie Vedder, probably because he was bald. The album showcases his penchant for mischievously inflammatory lyrics, specifically on the song The Truth, which includes the line, here I love it, this. Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, are you ready? Here comes the lawsuit, baby. <laughs> which is a pre-chorus to the chorus of him covering Slow Ride by Foghat. <laughs> of all the songs which, to cover. Which is a dangerous move. Do you remember that thing with recently with Car Seat Headrest where he... Um, 
interpolated a Cars song into one of his records and cost his label like an enormous amount of money because he hadn't cleared it. And Rick Ocasek's either his estate or when he was still alive, like went after them for it. And they had to destroy like every pressing of vinyl that this thing had already been printed on. Yeah, I think it was like a five-figure loss because they had to get rid of all the physical media that had it on there. Wow. It's yeah. like the situation with ALBA and, uh, you know, we did it for Dancing Queen. Oh, KMFDM. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Man, music industry. Cruel Clear your samples. Yeah, exactly. That's the moral of that story. Um, and after these two failed albums, he relocated to New York where he bust in the East Village Tompkins Square Park. wonder if he meant some of the... Jeff Buckley. Jeff Wasn't Buckley. Yeah. Played over by the Senate. I, I was thinking there? of all the I was thinking of all the punk rockers on from like C Squat who would have been hanging out there. Um, and therein lies the difference between us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You go to Jeff Buckley, I go to Crust Punks. He also co-wrote the song Here Comes My Baby for Belinda Carlisle of the Go-Go's on her nineteen ninety-three album Real, which is a bit of an early taste of his prolific career later in his life as a songwriter for other artists. And this relatively big score of getting a co-write on a Belinda Carlisle song emboldened him to keep working on material for himself. And this is what sowed the seeds for the New Radicals project. It was always designed to be a vehicle for himself with no permanent lineup in place. It was just going to be like a revolving door of players, not unlike John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band. And speaking of my beloved Beatles, the longtime guitarist in Paul McCartney's band, Rusty Anderson, plays guitar on You Get What You Give. He was a New Radical. Did you know that? I did not. At the time, he was in a band called Edna Swap, which I have to admit I'm not familiar with. But Greg Alexander would later admit that it was mostly a case of pulling in favors with people who'd played with him in the past. Uh, he'd later say, oh, yeah, Greg's down on his luck. Let's go play on his demo for the hell of it. We'll have a good laugh, have a couple beers and maybe smoke a J or whatever. <laughs> Just him talking to the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, back in the 90s, he talked to Rolling Stone about his unorthodox band, saying, it's very open. If someone's drunk mom comes on stage and wants to play comedy is with us that's a possibility so it's a very freeform thing i feel like that's a reference to um do you ever hear what marky smith said about the fall no actually i do wonder if this if, if, a, if this is a reference to the fall because the fall they were post-punk band fronted by a guy named mark e smith who's a notorious crank and he fired everyone in the band for decades they're they're like previous band member list on wikipedia is like 70 it was insane and, and his famous quote about it was i am the fall if it's me and your granny on bongos, it's still the fall. <laughs> so I have to wonder if Greg Alexander knew that and made That's a reference to like it. very like Sun King of him. Yeah. <laughs> the state, it's me. Um, the only constant member of this loose collective was keyboard player and percussionist Danielle Brisebois. I think that's how you say her name. Brisebois, I'm going to just call her Danielle because there's a good chance I'm getting that name wrong. <laughs> but she's a really interesting person. She got her start as a child star, appearing as the character Stephanie Mills on the later seasons of All in the Family Aww. and the show's spinoff, Archie Bunker's Place, for which she earned a Golden Globe nomination. So, yes, the guitarist on You Get What You Give plays in Paul McCartney's band and has for over 20 years now and the keyboardist on the track was on all in the family incredible we're really we're, we're, we're building up a world here <laughs> plus she was in the original broadway production of annie and you can hear her sing on jay-z's hard knock life ghetto anthem because he sampled her performance so really interesting person i here. tricked my mom into letting me buy that jay-z record because i was like yeah his whole thing is just like you know sampling broadway, broadway. <laughs> 
sorry, mom. (laughs) Um, So this is more than enough for most of us to rest on our laurels for the rest of our lives, but not Danielle. She pursued a career in music after her child star days, both under her own name and also performing with Greg Alexander in his early solo albums, like we mentioned. She co-wrote Natasha Bedingfield's Unwritten and Pocket Full of Sunshine, and later appeared as a singer in the Oscar-winning Jack Nicholson Helen Hunt movie, As Good As It Gets, one of my favorite movies. And she also played on You Get What You Give. So huge props there. That's a hell of a resume. Truly. Uh, Greg Alexander's less than positive experiences on his prior albums actually had a liberating effect when it came to putting together this batch of new radical songs that would surface on their one and only album, Maybe You've Been Brainwashed Too. As he told The Hollywood Reporter in 2014, he said he was, quote, used to making records that never got heard and basically decided to stop trying to make music that might be successful, which I find weird considering how catchy you get what you give is, but whatever. Uh, Instead, he said he, quote, ripped up the few rules that applied to my first two records. And Maybe You've Been Brainwashed too was produced basically solo. He said, I wanted it to be different from every other band. That's why I produced the album myself. I didn't want any other producer to come in and make it sound like some other band. Um, just side note, I always got the impression just before researching this that Greg Alexander was sort of an unpleasant control freak. And this was purely because of two pieces of information that I had about this guy, one of which was grossly inaccurate. One, I'd mistakenly believed that he played every instrument on the song himself, which is not true. Uh, Combine this with the fact that he walked away from fame. I just assumed that he was a very my way or the highway type of guy, and he just couldn't, you know, handle the collaborations necessary for the music industry. But apparently none of this was the case. I am very wrong. Upon reading up on him for this episode, he seems quite lovely. That's actually the word he uses to describe people that he admires in interviews. Lovely, which I also find lovely. Uh, First of all, he truly turned his back on celebrity BS. As we'll touch on later, once New Radicals ended in 1999, he didn't give a major interview until talking to The Hollywood Reporter in 2014. So that's 15 years he didn't give a substantial sit-down interview. Good for him. So that's part of the reason why. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, he really, he meant it when he, this is no like, oh yeah, we'll do a reunion tour later for a bunch of money. He really, he meant it. He stuck to his guns. Um, and that's also why I keep leaning on that Hollywood Reporter piece so much, because there's not a lot out there. But that and a profile in Billboard a few years later by Stephen J. Horowitz paint a portrait of an insanely sweet guy. Case in point, he brings an umbrella for the journalist just in case he doesn't have one because it's a rainy day. When it turns out the journalist came prepared, Greg Alexander leaves the umbrella in the park in case anyone else should get caught in the rain. That's so cute. I just find that really sweet. Um, he also apparently carries around a wad of $20 bills so he can tip wait staff and porters and anyone who even goes slightly out of their way for him. I don't know. I just find this... Very sweet. Yeah. Um, In the Billboard piece, Horowitz writes, quote, at every turn, he describes the people he admires as lovely. He has the sort of egoless familiarity of someone who doesn't care for fame. I don't know. I just wanted to share that. He seems like a genuinely nice guy. Yeah, um, that's co- going a long coming way. After the, right, yeah. I mean, our last episode on music was about Guns N' Roses, so. <sighs> yeah, this is, we'll call this one the palate cleanser. <laughs> this is pretty far from Axl Rose. Slash, from what I've heard, is very nice. Uh, anyway, Greg shopped around his demos, and he caught the attention of a guy named Michael Rosenblatt, who is the guy who signed Madonna. So this guy knew a good thing when he heard it. 
I'm pretty sure that the album, maybe even Brainwash 2, was mastered straight from the demo cassette. So he basically had it fully formed, which is uh, pretty impressive. That was what they did with um, Boston's debut record. He recorded it all in his basement. And uh, when he was signed, they were like, okay, well, you got to perform it. You got to do it in a regular studio now. And he was like, no. (laughs) So they brought a mobile recording truck to his like Boston apartment. So he just retracked the record in the basement, running cables out to a mobile board to get the masters. All while lying to the label through an intermediary that he was, in fact, working in a real studio. So so he just re-recorded all the demos in his own studio uh, and then sent them off to the label. Good for him. Didn't you interview him? I sure did. Yeah, that's what I'm reading from is the interview I did with him. Yeah, he was was fine. Uh, Big into vegetarianism and roller skating. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. (laughs) But I just want to stress that it is extremely unusual for a musician to get a second chance at a label deal. Greg Alexander got three at this point. He had his first album on AM, second on Epic, both flopped, and now he's getting another chance for this new Radicals project. I just think that's amazing. He was just that good. So the clear standout on this album in progress is You Get What You Give, which was initially just a writing exercise that he set for himself with a goal of each line in the lyrics topping the one that came before it. It was uh, co-written with a guy named Rick Knowles, who, despite me not recognizing his name with my intense granular knowledge of the music industry, this man had his hands in everything, and I know not a, a not a matchstick of knowledge about him. Knowles has co-written and co-produced over 90 hit singles, and his songs have sold on over 250 million albums. Wow. Uh, That includes Summertime Sadness by Lana Del Rey, great song, White Flag by Dido, Standing Still by Jewel, The Power of Goodbye by Madonna, Heaven is a Place on Earth by Belinda Carlisle, great song, Uh, and Mm -hmm. Sinks, Thinking of You, parentheses, I Drive Myself Crazy. Um, But despite that co-write, most of the lines have a personal meaning to Greg. 4 a.m., we ran a Miracle Mile, references his time living around L.A.'s Miracle Mile area. We're flat broke, but hey, we do it in style is a reference to his lost years when he briefly dropped out of the music industry to sleep on friends' couches. In fact, the whole chorus of Don't Give Up, You've Got the Music in You could easily be seen as an encouragement to himself after the years of rejection or at least tepid responses he was getting in the music industry. In her amazing history of the song for the A.V. Club, Annie Zaleski writes, On one level, you get what you give almost feels like Alexander's pep talk to himself to continue on his creative path. The song's lyrics remind dreamers who feel down on their luck that they're special and capable, even if they're broken, desperate. Don't let go. You've got the music in you. And encourages them to hang on despite bleak times. The beginning hints at stifling religious forces and youthful abandon. Later, there's a plea to strive for substance as well as an oblique reference to romantic solidarity. Even the recurring phrase, we only get what we give, is deceptively simple. It hints at deeper philosophical and spiritual conversations about the impact a person's life has on the world. Um, You put it out there that this is believed to be the first song to include the word frenemy, which I did a little sleuthing. The word frenemy uh, apparently dates back to a 1953 article by a guy named... Walter Winchell, who is the... Go- oh, he was a gossip reporter. Yeah, for the Nevada State Journal. 
And um, I thought this was suspect for a while until I learned that the Oxford English Dictionary uses it in their definition of the word frenemy. So, folks, if you wonder where it came from, it came from a Nevada gossip columnist. (laughs) That's funny that it was in Nevada because he was like a big, I forget, I think he was... I think he was based in New York for a while. I think mm. I think he and Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan got a start as like a entertainment columnist, gossip columnist basically, and they hated each oh, other. Oh yeah, I so think. then Ed ran him out of New York and he landed in Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Meyer Lansky. <laughs> as you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. The politics of you get what you give. Naive or prescient? Jordan, your thoughts. Um, well, of course, the first thing I think about is the end of the song, the most famous or infamous part of the song, the spoken word, it's kind of almost pseudo rapish part at the end. Um, most certainly a product of the period when rap rock was on the rise, I guess you could say. This was Greg Alexander's soapbox moment as he takes a stand against corporate America and the commodification of art. We all know the words, but here's a quick refresher. Do you want to do, do this? I can't do the rap. I didn't brush up on it. I think you're going to have to do it. I'll just speak it then. You love when I speak rap lyrics anyway. This isn't, I can't really call this rap, but health insurance, ripoff, lying, FDA, big bankers buying, fake computer crashes, dining, cloning while they're multiplying, 
fashion shoots with Beck and Hanson, Courtney Love and Marilyn Manson. You're all fakes. Run to your mansions. Come around. We'll kick your ass in. I do remember how he recites that last line. He's like, we'll kick your yeah. ass in. I thought it was asses, plural. Mm. I didn't know that until. Yeah. So let's start with the first part first. Uh, it may be hard to believe, but these words were actually some of the most pointedly political lyrics that had found their way into a pop song in quite some time. As Greg told The Hollywood Reporter, quote, my favorite writers and artists had a human politics aspect to their work, and that was something that drove me. I felt, perhaps too early on, that it was going to be a challenge to get even a portion of that sentiment across in this song. As an experiment on You Get What You Give, I had what at the time was one of the more political lyrics in a long, long, long time, to the point where some of the people I was working with were horrified. Mm -hmm. In a pop song, I was going after health insurance companies and corruption, the Food and Drug Administration, and the hypocrisy of the war on drugs, Big Bankers, and Wall Street. To allude to all that stuff in a pop song was, in retrospect, a naively crazy proposition. Uh, that quote is from 2014, but back in 1999, when he was younger and still had his boxing gloves on, <laughs> he gave this quote to journalist Stuart Berman about the apathy that had seeped into the music industry. He said, rock and roll is recreating the same vague, apolitical crap as a Coca-Cola commercial. I'm censoring this. I'm sorry. Uh, what do these people have to say about the real world? The whole 90s alternative rock thing was such a letdown. It was all about, oh, well, whatever, never mind. Rock and roll is supposed to be a voice against oppression, not an apathetic grunt. Ooh. But this mentality was not without its critics. At the time of its release, Rolling Stone writer Allison Stewart called You Get What You Give, quote, a rant against consumerism, health insurance companies, and soulless rock stars, to which Alexander responded by saying, it's a snapshot of our times. If people want to drive a car into me for it, that's their prerogative. Uh, that, that was prescient, given the, some of the shit that people were doing to the Black Lives Matters activists. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that was a quote from 1999, I believe. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I take issue with this whole thing about being like, oh, he's so political. Like, Rage Against the Machine were still an operating concern at this point. That band was getting videos on MTV that had, like, Leonard Peltier and the American Indian Movement and Mumia Abu-Jamal and, you know, Stolen Land. Like, they were some of the most subversive uh, political acts because they... As we've learned from the current tide of conservatives getting red-assed when they discover that the, the band that they like that plays in heavy minor pentatonic box riffs, when they finally discover they're a leftist band. I mean, I personally would not have gotten half of what I know about this country's blood-soaked past if I hadn't have gotten those Rage Against the Machine records. Right. They're not a pop I, band. I they're not a pop band. Right, Certainly. I think that's the main thing. I mean, the, the band's name is Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. Their album cover has the monk yeah. setting himself ablaze in protest yeah. of... I, yeah, but they were also on the airwaves. They weren't like... They were. Um... Yeah, but I think you... I would argue that You Get What You Give was more mainstream and reached more people sure, sure. at the time yeah. in 1998, 1999 than Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. And I think being able to slip those messages... In, uh, John Lennon had a quote about Imagine... Which, I mean, for whatever it's worth, is one of my least favorite John Lennon songs. Um, he said, you know, I, I spent so much of the late 60s doing these really obtuse, angry, difficult to listen to songs that, you know, had these really heavy handed messages for, for peace in the anti-war movement. 
and it wasn't really getting through to the most amount of people that they could. So with Imagine, it was putting a little honey in there to make it more palatable to sneak that message in there. And I think, you know, and this may be more of a philosophical difference between you and I even, (laughs) I think there is an element of, you know, one could call it selling out for trying to catch mainstream trends. Another person could say you're arguably being more subversive yeah. by trying to sneak in messaging that gets in under yeah. the radar I mean, of the people was, that would try to stop such That things. was always my thing about Rage Against the Machine, where people would be like, there are like DIY punk rock bands in Britain who have been doing this same shit for years and they're not signed with Sony. And, you know, <laughs> right. but arguably because they had that level of exposure and they were at that level of mainstream saturation, they were able to reach a lot more people with that message. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, I don't, hearing those words now about the FDA and health insurance, I mean, it all feels pretty sort of vague. Yeah. But still, I mean, I think it was more for kind of the thing that for its time, in a song that just even sonically sounded like that. Yeah. I mean, you look at the album cover. I mean, you contrast the Rage Against the Machine cover with the Monk with the Maybe You've Been Brainwashed 2 cover. It looks like a Skechers ad. <laughs> I mean, it's like bright, you know, yeah. this guy in a bucket hat or whatever. And we'll touch on this later. Despite the flack that he may have gotten at the time for including these vaguely political concerns at the end of the song, I'd say that helped the song age well. Yeah. Because now in this day and age, you get crucified as an artist for not using your platform to take a stand for something. You know what I haven't heard about in a while that was like a hot button thing for the 90s was cloning. Now it's all about like lab grown meat, right? And impossible burgers. But remember like everybody was real up in arms about Dolly the sheep. I don't remember people being up in arms. I just remember people being like, oh, wow, that's that's weird. Yeah. Well. So Greg Alexander had that sheep in his razor sharp crosshairs. <laughs> I mean, I grew up 45 minutes from MIT. Oh, are you a clone? Are you a clone? <laughs> Am I doing you? Is this like, well, no, is this no, like an Isaac like Asimov maybe. moment where you're like, ah, or like, <laughs> I guess more Philip K. Dick. You're like questioning your own identity. You like Jordan like looks <laughs> down and, and can subtly see like a barcode encoded in his skin in fluorescent ink. He's like, no. <laughs> Um, on the plus side, that means we have, don't have to feed you as much and we can just have you cranking these out again. Well, yeah, I was going to say, how, why do you think I respond to all your tweets and texts at all hours? <laughs> all right. And now we must come to the true meat of the song, which is this man, this willowy man threatening to, I guess he's not willowy, he's thin, but this gentle Michigan boy threatening the then boogeyman of rock. You know, you take pot shots at the FDA and the big banks and sheep cloning that's all well and good but then the line about courtney love marilyn manson and uh, other various pop cultural figures he claimed that that was a joke to offset the heaviness of the real issues he sang about in the prior lines yeah the whole rap part at the end there's eight lines the first four are all about the fda and health insurance and then the last four are courtney love beck and hansen marilyn manson And so he basically did that because he wanted to raise concerns about real things and then toss in some lines about celebrity drama as an experiment uh, to see which the media would focus on, the big picture issues or the celebrity disses. And uh, buddy. I know. You sweet summer child, Greg. As two guys who have spent over a decade working in in that sphere, I can tell you which one the industry was going to focus on right away. Greg has frequently spoken over the years about how these fame-focused lines took precedence over the real issues, saying, 
to notice that everybody focused on the so-called celebrity bashing lyric instead of this lyric that was talking about the powers that be that are holding everybody down, that was something that I was kind of disillusioned by. Moreover, he claimed that he had no issues with any of the artists he name-checked and subsequently threatened to beat their asses in. But, um, you know, we like to call this the find-out phase of the experiment. Uh, Marilyn Manson, um, probably then at the height of his powers, really, um, in terms of monopolizing airplay, uh, said to Kurt Loder in 1998, I'm giving an open invitation to the singer of the New Radicals because he's all strange and spiritual and he challenged me in one of his songs. A lot of people would say, you know, don't give him the attention because that's what he wants. But I think I'll crack his skull open if I see him. (laughs) And pretty unambiguous. Manson probably would. He was doing what? Ungodly. But could he? Yeah, I mean, maybe, dude. He's doing like more cocaine than God. He's also a tall dude. Oh, that's true. But he was very. But he's gangly. Yeah, gangly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's we just turned into like an MMA style podcast of like, well, you know, Manson's got that really long reach. He could probably just keep Greg Alexander at bay with a couple of well placed jabs. But I think Alexander might have him in weight. What do you think? Yeah, but Manson also got one of his ribs removed. So that's true. His uh, extra flexibility makes it more flexible. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Gosh, I could not I, true. I could see this one going either ways. What about you, Joe Rogan? Um, <laughs> Jamie, can we get Joe Rogan online to talk about whether or not Marilyn Manson or the guy from New Radicals would win a fight? Thanks. <laughs> Manson then added that he's not mad he said he'd kick my ass. I just don't want to be used in the same sentence with Courtney Love. Um, it's been lost to the mist of time whether or not the two actually squared off. But there's an interesting coda involving uh, Manson's one-time girlfriend and uh, alleged sexual assault victim, Evan Rachel Wood, one of... At current count, 16 people who have come forward accusing Manson of sexual assault and far worse. In August 2021, she performed a cover of You Get What You Give in L.A. at the Bourbon Room as a middle finger to Manson. Um, And apparently this was her response to Kanye, including Manson, at his release party for his album Donda. And uh, Evan posted the song on Instagram with the caption, For my fellow survivors who got slapped in the face this week, I love you, don't give up. But, back to Greg. He thankfully kissed and made up with several of the people he name-checked at the end of the song. Apparently running into Beck by chance at the supermarket. (laughs) In an interview, Beck said, He came running up to me, so apologetic, and saying, I hope you weren't offended, it wasn't supposed to be personal. I was kind of pleased, because he's a big guy. (laughs) Beck is a slight man. Greg Alexander is six foot five. Funnily, funnily enough, Greg Alexander would actually later collaborate with the band Hanson, thus finishing out the line of that lyrics. And drummer Zach Hanson later called him, you know, a bit of a character, but a cool guy. But we can't talk about You Get What You Give without discussing the iconic music video uh, on the short list of my favorite videos from the 90s, I have to say. Greg Alexander and a bunch of youths run amok through a mall, perfectly illustrating the anti-corporate message of the song. He says he chose a mall as the setting for the video because he sees it as a metaphor for society, a fake controlled environment engineered to encourage spending. However, I find it interesting, not trying to take any shots here, that the director of the video, a guy by the name of Evan Bernard, has directed a ton of commercials for MasterCard, McDonald's, Nike's, uh, you know, big 
corporations. But he also directed videos for the Beastie Boys and was mentioned in the Beastie Boys top 10 hit Get It Together with the lyrics Drive the Lane Like I Was Evan Bernard. I was unable to find out if he actually played basketball. <laughs> but he did maybe he did a video a, a commercial for the WNBA, so maybe he's got some uh secret moves on the court. I don't know. Maybe I a part of me does appreciate somebody doing uh well-paying gigs for corporations and taking that money and then to do it for like, you know, Tibet fundraising yeah. videos and stuff like that for the Beastie Boys. He also did the seldom seen clip for Army by Ben Folds 5, one of my favorite Ben Folds songs. Hmm. So over on the whole, I'd say, Evan Bernard, you're doing good. The video was filmed over the course of a day at the Staten Island Mall. Uh, Greg Alexander and the New Radicals drummer were the only real members of the band in the video. The rest were hired actors. I very nearly made a field trip out there once I found that it was out in Staten Island, which is kind of hard to get to from Brooklyn. Um, I wouldn't hard, recommend it. Kind of a schlep. Do you want me to tell the David Johansson story? Oh, yeah. Like a year into my tenure at People Magazine, I got a press release that David Johansson, who's the lead singer of the New York Dolls, was going to be playing the Carlisle, the very famous hotel on the Upper West Side where Woody Allen plays his like weekly set of traditional New Orleans jazz. And But he would be doing it as Buster Poindexter, who famously had one of the most annoying hits of all time with the song Hot, Hot, Hot that you have heard at every wedding in the world. David Johansson's incredible musical encyclopedia. He knows like the entire history of American blues, but he also has like Calypso and Roomba and like actually knows all of those songs very well. And like English music hall as well. And which is why it's so funny to me that that song hit for him, but whatever I go to interview him and uh, he is polite, but so sour. <laughs> I was like, because that episode of No Reservations has him at like a tiki bar with Anthony Bourdain. Oh, yeah. And I asked him about it. And he was like, ah, the producers took me there. I don't know that place. And I was like, <laughs> you're from Staten Island. You're like probably the one of the biggest New York rock icons who lives in Staten Island. Like, what do you like about Staten Island? This is, there's a long, dry pause on the line. He goes, well, I hear the ferry's nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I recovered from that one. And then, uh, and then he goes, yeah, I mean, you know, we've got lovely beaches and the, uh, some of the biggest think tanks in the country are, uh, are located here. And in my idiocy, I went, Oh really? And he, there's a, there's a withering pause on the line. He goes, no, <laughs> but, um, he gave a tremendous, love you got the New York dolls in people magazine. That's, that's yeah. tremendous. It was a great, it was a great, I mean, I, it was a great show at the Carlisle. He told one of my favorite jokes that I started stealing in for, for our shows, which was the doctor told me to keep it to one drink a day. So, and then you hold up your drink and say, this one is from May 26, 2112. <laughs> um, anyway. I love the people that we've snuck into people. I remember like, yeah, I mean, I got the woman, I, I snuck in a full length, exhaustively researched profile of uh, the woman from uh, Coven, like the band that had a like satanic panic record. Her name is Jinx. I got John Cale in. Yeah. <laughs> for the 50th anniversary yeah. of Velvet Underground's debut. Yeah, we did that some, was... we did some ridiculous <laughs> shit. <laughs> Liam Gallagher. A disappointing, I think the headline on that was a disappointingly polite interview with Liam Gallagher. My favorite was probably actually, I did this thing, there's this band that I like called Matmos, 
um, out of Baltimore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I got a press release that their new album was going to be conducted or was going to be made from sounds that they sampled from their washing machine. And I, I knew the publicist, and I liked the publicist, so I wrote, like, a quick little thing about new band putting out, or band putting out record entirely composed of sounds from their washing machine. And it, like, blew up, and they got invited onto, like, the today show and it was like their publicist wrote me back and was like this is the most exposure they've had in their entire career <laughs> i was like oh <laughs> i'm really really happy i was able to do that for them um yeah i reviewed ramstein uh, <laughs> i was proud of that where, i don't even know where were we on topic i have no idea where we are now <laughs> oh but i didn't make the trek to staten island mm. because i learned that the whole atrium area of the mall has changed. The fountain has been paved over. The food court's been moved. And the elevator with the light bulbs in it that he sings it is no longer in use. So major bummer all around. But any fans in the New York metro area want to make a pilgrimage to the Staten Island Mall, I don't know, please get in touch. Maybe we'll make a day of it. <laughs> you got to pay us. <laughs> that's, a, that's a Patreon tier. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got a 2009 VW Beetle. I can fit three. <laughs> So, there we go. Anyway, the album Maybe You've Been Brainwashed 2 was released on October 16th, 1998. Uh, its title, I've read, is believed to be a nod to his Jehovah Witness upbringing and lapsed faith. Um, not totally sure. I've never seen him speak about that directly, but that's an interesting theory. Mm -hmm. The album only peaked at number 41 in the U.S., but it went on to go platinum, selling a million copies. And most of this was on the strength of You Get What You Give. But there were some other good moments as well on the record. It's really stylistically varied. And Greg Alexander has described the sound of the record to Rolling Stone as, quote, what happens when you have 8,000 messages flying through your heads at once? And the title track, Maybe You've Been Brainwashed too, features drums from the XTC song All of a Sudden from their English Settlement album. And according to XTC songwriter Andy Partridge, the sample was used without permission. Oh, another one of these stories. And XTC and their record company received 70,000 pounds or about $100,000 in compensation for its use. Um, did I ever tell you about how I, I discovered XTC? It's a real embarrassing rookie move. I was interviewing Dave Grohl for a record store day mm. a bunch of years ago. And like I was trying to like he's a big Odyssey and Oracle by the Zombies fan. Mm -hmm. And so I was nerding out with him about that and just other stuff that we found at record stores. And I'd never heard of XTC, which I now know is a very well-known band. Mm -hmm. And he name dropped them and it was very clear I had no idea what he was talking <laughs> about. And he's like, Oh man, have you never heard of XTC? Oh I mean he was cute about it, but I still like it's inhibited my ability to enjoy XTC to this day because I just think of this look of disappointment in Dave Girl's face when I <laughs> Just blanked him on it. So, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, XTC, uh, Andy Partridge, I assume, filed some kind of suit against uh, New Radicals. That's on the lower end of the mid to late 90s unauthorized sample lawsuit scale, if Bittersweet Symphony is the highest. Didn't they have to turn over literally everything they made from that song? I think, yes. I think that that eventually got overturned a couple years ago. Oh, so they I got some think. money back? I don't think they got money back, but I think now the rights are reverted to them, I think. Oh, oh good. Good for them. I love them. Yeah, I love well, but now, now that it makes, like, what, like 15 grand a year or whatever. Oh, yeah. Probably would have been helpful before uh, the rise of the streamers, huh? Well, yeah. Kind of love being a musician. Uh, the single 
Jordan, tell us about the single release. Yes, the single You Get What You Give was released a few weeks after the album in November of 1998, and Greg had high hopes for it at the time. He told Billboard upon its release, I enjoy watching it climb up the chart. I'm ready to be carted around like a piece of meat. You have to cut a deal with the machine and be thrown to the wolves. This is where the narrator voice comes in. He would come to regret the sentiment <laughs> as he retired from the music industry for years. Um, but still, it really caught him off guard when the song actually caught on. He tells the story of walking down Sunset Boulevard shortly after the song's release and hearing it blasting out of a car that drove past him. And his initial reaction wasn't joy, but hey, someone stole my demo tape. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, another car came by blasting the song. And instead of like putting it all together, like, oh yeah, it's the song's out and it's being played on the radio. He thought, oh my God, how did all these people get my demo tape? <laughs> sweet, sweet boy. Uh, the song ultimately topped the charts in Canada and New Zealand. and was a top five smash in the UK. Only hit number 36 on the hmm. Billboard Hot 100, which surprised me given its influence. Uh, the album was very well received by the critics. Robert Criscow, who hates everything by my <laughs> record, uh, gave it an A. Uh, the outlet known as the Daily Record had a really interesting take. They wrote, this anthem sounds like the Water Boys at their best and has meaningful lyrics. It may sound like Bruce Springsteen, but that's no bad thing. This upbeat anthem will be played in all the good bars of the land. When is being compared to Bruce a bad thing? I know, thing? but the Waterboys rip too, so that's cool. And mm. then the praises, the plaudits started rolling in from on high. Holland Oates <laughs> teamed up with Todd Rundgren to cover the second single from the album, Someday We'll Know. And the record also got praise from George Michael and Prince, apparently, which is, must have been a lovely full circle moment there for old Greg, because he used to cover 1999 live in 1999. Um, <laughs> it's better than that f Will Smith song where he's like, we're going to party like it's 1990. Hold up. It is. Oh, God, I hate Will Smith. Um, but you get what you give in particular earned more than its fair share of shout outs from the musical elite. In 2006, Ice-T was asked on Late Night with Conan O'Brien about what he's heard besides rap music in the last few years that really grabbed him. And his only reply was, you get what you give. Ten, ten years but later se seven years of music had been made at that point <laughs> and that was still yeah. an interview with time u2 guitarist the edge cited you get what you give ladies and gentlemen the edge ladies and gentlemen the edge with that hat that he hasn't taken off in 30 years um as one of the songs that he's most jealous of not writing uh, take this with a grain of salt because wonderwall was the other song that he said he's jealous of not writing. That's a great tune, Edge said, of uh, You Get What You Give. I really would love to have written that. Great spirit, great energy. He was making an appearance in 2015 with Bono on the Awards Chatter podcast for THR, and he said, when I first heard that on the radio, we were in the studio working on something, and I was like, what? I promptly went and wrote a song that I thought was mildly influenced by that tune, and it turned out that like within an hour of playing it, everyone was going, what are you doing? That's the same as the New Radicals, so it never saw the light of day. Uh, Bono added of Alexander, yeah, stunning songwriter, stunning songwriter, he's amazing. And Greg, who it must be said sounds very Bono-like with the falsetto Oz that he puts in the song, was very appreciative of the praise, telling Billboard, wow, it's like being complimented by the Beatles. To which I say, narrator voice, it was not. <laughs> um, spotlight on Joni Mitchell. I tell, you, I tell you my Bono story. 
No. This is, this is, this, this is like this whole episode. It's just going to get padded out by our, our star. Our, 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 or our anecdotes, or our, in this case, is a secondhand anecdote. Um, a family member was in Ireland on some business lunch, and one of her colleagues looked across the restaurant and saw Bono eating lunch with a friend. And this woman just completely melted down. She is just a Bono super fan. It'd be like if I saw Paul McCartney across the room, mm-hmm. like, you could no longer have business discussions, could no longer eat, could, could barely breathe. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's just completely freaking out. And you know, all business talk is tabled while they're just like talking about Bono yeah, across the room, Bono, basically. Bono. Bono gets up and goes to the bathroom and this woman runs over and speaks to his friend and said, look, I'm sorry, I never do this. This is embarrassing. Bono is everything to me. I, I don't want to disturb you anymore. They already have. I'm really sorry. But could you ask him to just sign a, a menu, a napkin, anything? It would just mean the world to me. And Bono's friend's like, well... You know, I, I I can't make him do anything. You know, he's Bono. She, oh, no, 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 I totally understand, totally understand. I'll try, I'll try. Thank you, thank you so much. She runs back to her table. Bono leaves the bathroom, sits back down with his friend. Everybody finishes lunch. Bono and his friend get up to leave. A waiter comes over to this woman's table and drops this napkin that's been signed by Bono in her lap. And she's just overjoyed, like, you know, tears are welling up. She's thrilled. They ask for the check and the waiter said, oh, no, don't worry, it's been taken care of. And Mr. Springsteen says, have a wonderful day. Bono's friend was Bruce Springsteen, and she was so, she had her Bono glasses on so much that she didn't even realize that she was talking to Bruce Springsteen that whole time, which I'm sure Bruce loved. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And now, as our thoughts inevitably drift towards, we must speak of Joni Mitchell. She really liked the song uh, and has said so. Really liked the said song. As much publicly several times over the years. In 2000, Joni called it the only song I have liked in a long time and referred to Greg Alexander as my kind of punky white boy. Joni's got some problematic thoughts on race, but we'll um, gloss over that. Two years later, in 2002, she told Rolling Stone, The only thing I heard in many years that I thought had greatness in it was the New Radicals. I loved that song, You Get What You Give. It was a big hit, and I said, where did they go? Turns out the guy quit. I thought, good for him. I knew he was my kind of guy. (laughs) And then in the liner notes to her 2004 compilation, Artist Choice, she praised the song again for rising above the swamp of Mick Music like a flower of hope. So... That's cool. That's good. And, you know, Greg's in good company because uh, in a 2020 interview with Cameron Crowe, she said the only current-ish people that she was listening to were the semi-obscure R&B singer Leela James and Babyface. Wow. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, So the new radicals are starting to take off, but in a story we have heard dozens, hundreds of times before, Greg Anderson learned that feeding the music industry beast is not always a good time. He was exhausted from all the promotional duties, the interviews, the DJ glad handing, um, all the things that you have to do as a musician that really don't have to do with music. Heigl, as a musician, I'm sure you have a lot to say about this. I know you, I, I, I can start. You literally wrote a song about this topic that I played with you in your band. Yeah, I mean, I'm tempted to say like, when you're making actual money, it's part of the job. I'm sure it sucks, but like, if you had a platinum selling single out, suck it up and do the interviews. You, you punk. Like, like, I'm sorry. I Yes, I wrote a song about it, but also I make no money. Like, I'm sure he had a manager, dude. T- to be a musician today is to, like, run your entire shop by yourself until you get to a certain level. Like, you have to be your own booker. You have to be your own social media person. You have to be your own engineer. You finance your own records. You drive the van yourself. So... I agree with what he's saying in theory, but also at the level he was operating at, I don't necessarily think he has cause to like gripe, whatever. People can gripe about whatever they want, but like you have a platinum selling single out, dude. Like, yeah, you're going to have to do some radio promos. Suck it up. (laughs) Sorry. You were signed at 16. Like the trials of your life as a musician are minor. (laughs) Well, I mean, he did also, he was also grinding it out from age 16 to age, what, 27 or whatever it was when he didn't have any success. You're busking in the park. Oh, Oh. (laughs) signed at 16. Oh, let me, let me do the bill. By Jimmy Ivey. Yeah, by one of the most iconic record executives of all time. Let me just wipe my tears with my unsold t-shirts. 
from our old band. <laughs> I, I, dude, anyone from this generation just does not get sympathy for me. I'm sorry. If you were a musician before Napster and particularly before Spotify and Pandora, like, I'm sorry. You don't get sympathy for me. You have no, you, you motherfuckers have no idea what it's like out here. <laughs> anyway. I guess Greg said a personal low was having to tape station breaks for an L.A. area radio station saying stuff like, this is Greg from the New Radicals and you're hanging with the party pig. Oh, what a delicate like, little flower compromising his the art party for that. pig. I, mm. uh, no, well, no, got, I'm done. You got, you got I'm more? You got more? <laughs> In the Hollywood Reporter piece, he said that the party pig incident was, quote, a metaphor for all the sort of stuff that artists to this day have to do. And as bad as it seems back then is multiplied a thousand times. So he, yeah. he admits it. It seems like a sad trade-off for artists. It's the deal with the devil. If you want your work to be seen, it's unfortunately not just about the work. And when it becomes less about the art, then the art suffers. I simply missed feeling like an artist every day and being able to write songs every day and not feel like my time was being controlled and managed to answer to corporate shareholders. I so, admire the sentiment. I think that's a pretty... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, moreover, he added, I missed my old life, which I think, you know, that alone is enough. Okay, like walk away if you want. That's, I think there's, that's kind of an unpeachable sentiment. Yeah. And the other important thing to remember is that by 1999... Like I said earlier, he'd been around in the music industry for 12 years and was already just sort of done with it. In his own words, he was, quote, ready to retire. And so that's what he did. In the summer of 1999, just weeks after filming a video for the band's second single, Someday We'll Know, Greg Alexander released a statement on July 12th saying that the group, quote, will no longer be a recording, promoting, or performing entity. He announced that he wanted to focus on his own production company and writing songs for other artists. And he went on to say, I'm going to be turning 30 next year. And I realized that traveling and getting three hours of sleep in a different hotel every night and having to do hanging and schmoozing with radio and retail people is definitely not for me. Over the last several months, I'd lost interest in fronting a one-hit wonder, those are his words, to the point that I was wearing a hat while performing so that people wouldn't see my lack of enthusiasm. Yes, the famous bucket hat masked an inner sadness. Much like Slash. I both love and How hate Slash's that. top oh, hat yeah. masked his stage fright. Moral of the story is That's you see true. somebody wearing a hat on stage, they're the wild card. Give them a yeah. hug. <laughs> Do a wellness check. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the guy in Jamiroquai played... must be in tremendous pain. <laughs> <laughs> the bigger the hat, the heavier the load you carry. <laughs> um... He basically said that he had played the part of the pop star and did what he set out to do. He told MTV.com, it was an experience playing the artist, but I accomplished all of my goals with this record, and now I'm ready to move on and make the next step in my career. And true to his word, like we said, he stopped doing press until that 2014 interview for The Hollywood Reporter and immersed himself in songwriting and production. And while we're here... Let's do a little sidebar lightning round on bands that broke up after one really great album, shall yeah, we? Yeah, go ahead. Just bang them out. Not necessarily hits, but 
the Count Five psychotic reaction in 1966. We're going chronologically. Mm-hmm. That's a great Nuggets great, track great right there. Record. That's how I learned that song. Uh, the United States of America, a weird kind of psychedelic group from 1968. Their self-titled record is a classic. Blind Faith, of course. Although we should say all the supergroup types of stuff kind of get Yeah, I don't really think because, those counts. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how do we feel about Derek and the Dominoes? Layla, that's their one and only album aside from their live album from 73, I, I, I think. It could get grandfathered in, but it's another supergroup. Yeah, okay. Uh, the Modern Lovers debut in 1976 is their only real album, one. though they did have other demos and versions of stuff come out after. Sex Pistols, never mind the bollocks. That's the quintessential example of this trope, the one and done. Um, Rock Pile, Seconds of Pleasure with uh, Nick Lowe. I, I guess that's kind of uh, kind of a supergroup. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Joseph K's The Only Fun in Town, 1981. Minor Threats, Out of Step in 1983. But they had released. They released an EP after that. But I, yeah, no, that's eh, true. Whatever. Uh, Rite of Spring self-titled record in 1986. I'm just impressed you got these DC hardcore bands in here. <laughs> right? No, I do. I do my research. The Laws self-titled record in 1990. It's the one with There She Goes and uh, oh, Timeless Melody. It's a great song too. I think Temple of the Dogs self-titled 1991 record. I think this is also an edge case because that was convened as a special project as an all-star band right. to pay tribute to. Uh, Andrew Wood, Chris Cornell put that together. Andrew Wood, singer of Mother Love Bone. And another band and called Malfunction. Malfunction. Where, uh, <laughs> no disrespect to the dead, but those are uh, truly awful band names. But it does have my favorite grunge one hit wonder on there, baby. Fing Hunger Strike. And I'm going hungry. Yeah, yeah. I'm to tell you, I interviewed Chris Cornell and I asked him about uh, potential of. I was asked, I should say, to ask him about the potential of Temple of the Dog reuniting. Oh, yeah. He seems sad. He shot it down pretty quickly. Yeah. Poor guy. That one hit me a lot harder than I thought it would. Because I was just like, this mm. dude seemed like he on top of the world. Just like the best voice. Handsome. Aging well. <laughs> like, what a f***ing bummer. I watched that version of um, Nothing Compares to You that he sang and just like wept. Yeah. Anyway, that's enough about Chris Cornell. I paid tribute to him at his grave when I was in LA a couple weeks ago at uh, Hollywood Forever. Good. Uh, What else you got? Oh, I hate following up Chris Cornell with Boxcar (laughs) Racer's self-titled record in 2002. I mean... Less, less said about I, I think that, I the better. Some of those songs in my high school band, yeah. And finally, let's end with the Postal Service with "Give Up" in 2003. Bam, fine. Nothing to say about the Postal Service. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, the aftermath after disbanding the New Radicals, Greg Alexander found himself at a crossroads. Haven't used that one in a while. He flew yeah, yeah. to England and settled in Notting Hill. And at one point, he recalls living with the rock revivalist The Darkness. I would give a pound of my flesh to hear the atrocious collaborations that came out of that living arrangement. Oh, um, God. He started getting calls from music industry heavy hitters, namely Lucian Grange, the Harry Potter villain named CEO of Universal Music, who Greg refers to as Uncle Lucian, uh, who gave him an open invite to write for UMG artists under pseudonyms of his own choosing it basically gave him a chance to do what he used to do as a boy which was playing his demos for friends without telling them he was the one who wrote them he said i wanted people to either like or not like a song on its own volition of their own volition 
whatever. It gave me something to do, and it gave me a feeling that my music was being heard in my absence of being the person out there doing the dog and pony show. Teaming with his ex-New Radicals cohorts like Rick Knowles and Danielle Brisbois, he wrote songs for a host of British artists. Ronan Keating got Life is a Roller Coaster, which was a song Greg had originally written for the New Radicals follow-up record. That went to number one in the UK. He also wrote one of Jordan's favorite dance tracks, Murder on the Dance Floor, for Sophie Ellis Beckstore. That's a great song. Hit number two in England. Uh, Scottish rock band Texas took a song called Inner Smile to number six in the UK. And Greg even got to work with Rod Stewart on I Can't Deny It, a track from his top ten album, Human. He also wrote four songs on Enrique Iglesias' 2003 album, Seven. Did he write Hero? I don't think so. That song's a jam. Please tell me more. I'm surprised to hear you say that. Well, the, the video with my brunette love, Jennifer Love Hewitt, that did a lot for me. Um, uh, yeah. No, he did not. Ah, bummer. And then he lent his services to Melanie C., former Spice Girl Melanie C., for her single, On the Horizon. And he also, we mentioned he worked with Hanson, but also he mentioned indie rock aughts, rock revivalists, also rans the Kaiser Chiefs. How about that? And then, somehow, through this uh, morass, Clive Davis comes calling. And uh, when Clive calls, baby, you pick up the phone. Greg initially (laughs) thought that Clive was calling to yell at him. (laughs) <laughs> which he might have Clive had Clive doesn't yell he doesn't have to yeah it's true uh, Clive had famously smooshed together a contemporary songwriters modern artists to revitalize the career of Santana with 1999's Supernatural which hogged all of the Grammys foisted Santana's endless guitar caterwauling onto a new unsuspecting generation and gave us the undying meme of smooth a song i have come to loathe so so deeply it's so good come on no it's not (laughs) (laughs) anyway now he's working a follow-up to that and he wanted a song greg working under a fake name teamed with rick knowles to write the song the game of love that's a great track an early version was demoed by macy gray and her version remains unreleased and then tina turner took a stab at it and her rendition is included on santana's greatest hit so if you want to hear tina turner sing a song written by the new radicals guy and completely slathered in old guy guitar baby that's your song um He also has a demo of this song, and you can, it's great. you can hear on YouTube, and you can really hear how it's related to You Get What You Give. And it also opens with a drum beat that sounds very much like Raspberry Beret. The constant through line in Greg Alexander's career has been Prince. Uh, st- Did you listen to it? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I sent it to you. <laughs> you did, and it was very sweet. I, you- <laughs> and I opted to ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> Stuart Berman. It's actually very good. Stuart Berman, in his, I, I can tell I hurt you here, and I feel bad about that. <laughs> um, but I don't care about Greg Alexander. Uh, Stuart Berman, in his stereo gum piece, has an incredibly beautiful, almost haunting description that links the game of love to you get what you gig. Give? You get, <laughs> in this music industry, you certainly don't get what you gig. Uh, <laughs> underscoring the melancholy of a pop genius who benched himself. Uh, This is Berman's writing. 
The Game of Love includes a familiar ascending falsetto flourish remarkably similar to the one heard near the end of You Get What You Give, like a mysterious breadcrumb clue left behind by someone who doesn't want to be found. But if there's a cruel irony to hearing an anti-consumerist anthem getting stripped for spare parts that get repackaged into an adult contemporary pop song, it's an outcome that Alexander all but anticipated himself, end quote. The song was a smash, winning the Grammy Award for Best Pop Collaboration with Vocals in 2003, but Alexander began to feel the same sense of dissatisfaction and frustration with the music industry that he did at the height of his New Radicals fame. He felt that the business was morphing and becoming even more corporate, and semi-retired for the third time in his career, although he was open to working with any artist who called him, which was... I guess laudable. He retreated from the spotlight. Call him enough. He said, if, if somebody like bugged me enough, oh, okay. that was my metric for deciding like, how badly do they want me to like go do this. Eh, it's good to have standards. Um, yeah. His only emergence was to attend a handful of industry galas, galas in hopes of meeting his heroes. He said, uh, quote, the reason even one third of me has a foot in the door is the thrill of meeting Smokey Robinson or something like that, which I would, I would agree with. Um, for years, he lived between Europe, New York, and L.A., and advocated for charitable causes like clean water projects, poverty alleviation, and the Robin Hood tax to promote the taxation of offshore accounts. And then his career jumps up to a new level. Yes, he was coaxed out of retirement yet again to work on John Carney's 2013 romantic drama Begin Again, starring Kira Knightley, Mark Ruffalo, and Adam Levine. Uh, Bono was actually the one who passed Greg's number to the director because he thought he might be a good fit to contribute songs to the soundtrack, and he thought right. The movie resonated with Greg because it examined the downside of the record business, and the story follows a couple who grow apart after Alan Levine's character becomes a pop star. Greg said, There was a disillusionment of a lot of superficial aspects of the music business. I thought it had something very meaningful to say about it. So he teamed up with his longtime colleagues, Danielle Brisbois and composer Nick Lashley to write several songs for the movie, including Lost Stars, which was performed by Adam Levine and Kira Knightley. He said, quote, hopefully the lyrics infuse the script with the notion that we're all lost stars. I'm a lost star in some respects because maybe I walked away from my larger true destiny if I had had seven albums out by now. So that's interesting. An interesting bit of self-reflection. Lost Stars earned him an Oscar nomination for Best Original Song at the 2015 Academy Awards, but it lost to the Bond song for Spectre by Sam Smith, the writings on the wall. But it got Greg back in the limelight slightly. He did the aforementioned interview for The Hollywood Reporter during the press run-up for the Oscars. It's, like I said, his first substantial one since 1999. And he also performed publicly for the first time in 15 years at the 2014 Hollywood Music in Media Awards, where he sang Lost Stars. This sets the stage, in part, for the New Radicals one-off reunion for Joe Biden's inauguration at January 2021. Why did this happen, you ask? Well, funnily enough, Greg Alexander's ties to the Biden administration date back to his predecessor. In 2009, he was part of a musical collective called the Not-So-Silent Majority, which put together a song called Obama Rock around the time of Obama's inauguration. But the ties go even deeper for the Biden family. 
You get what you give was a favor to President Biden's late son, Beau, who used it as a rallying cry during his terminal battle with glioblastoma. In Biden's 2017 autobiography, Promise Me Dad, he wrote, quote, during breakfast, Beau would often make me listen, make me listen, that's a very telling choice of words, make me listen to what I thought was his theme song, You Get What You Give by the New Radicals. Even though Beau never stopped fighting and his will to live was stronger than most, I think he knew that this day would come. The words to the song are, this whole damn world can fall apart. You'll be okay. Follow your heart. Bo died in 2015, and at his funeral, his sister recited the lyrics to the song in her eulogy uh, in a slightly less touching connection with the song. Vice President Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, also used the song during the 2020 campaign rallies as his walk-on theme. Not as meaningful. <laughs> Um, after learning all this, Greg Alexander promised Biden that if he won the 2020 election, he'd sing the song at his inauguration, and he ultimately made good on his offer. Yes, January 20th, 2021, an unforgettable day. Lady Gaga sang the national anthem, Jennifer Lopez sang This Land is Your Land, interpolating Let's Get Loud into a moment that I'm sure <laughs> terrified a good number of white boomers. Uh, plus, there was a special hosted by Tom Hanks that featured performances from Bruce Springsteen, The Foo Fighters, John Legend, Justin Timberlake, Demi Lovato, and Bon Jovi. But all eyes were on the new radicals, <laughs> making their return to the stage to sing their song for the first time in 22 years. Or so that's what they'd have you believe. Because... <laughs> get, the, get the Jonathan Franks thing. It's a fiction. It's a fiction. It's wrong. We made it we, up. It's we made it all up. Yeah. You rube. <laughs> First of all, the New Radicals barely counted as a band, so there really wasn't this whole reuniting the classic lineup. The two of them were the band. And so due to uh, COVID-related restrictions, um, the two of Danielle and Greg Alexander were accompanied by musicians from the Philadelphia area rather than anyone else from the band's original lineup. And also he had sung a version of the song at the Los Angeles Italia Film Festival at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. In February of 2015, maybe because he had those hits in Italy, ah, whatever. Um, ah. Albeit a cappella, because the volume on the guitar mic was turned off. I don't know if that counts, but for the sake of the argument, let's give it to the inauguration. Prior to the performance, Greg said, We pledged if Joe won, we'd get together and play our little song, both in memory and in honor of our new president's patriot son, Bo, and also with the prayer of Joe being able to bring our country together again with compassion, honesty, and justice for change. This performance, he hoped, was a tiniest beacon of light in such a dark time. America knows in its heart that things will get bright again. <laughs> That's the message of the song. The world is going to pull through. The performance is intercut with footage of Biden supporters displaying messages of hope. Uh, there's not really, though, quite enough of the musical performance. And uh, Greg Alexander agreed, asked the executive producer of the inauguration if they could cut the other footage so as not to disappoint anyone turning in expecting to see just the performance. At which point she humorously reminded him, Greg, this is the presidential inauguration, not a new Radicals video, <laughs> which is... No, yeah, it's a pretty withering put down. But I want to tell you what did disappoint me. They cut the bridge. With the rap. They cut the, they cut the, they rap. Cut the rap bridge. The Marilyn Manson Beck and Hansen references were gone. The cigar chomping uh, executive is back there going, you don't ever cut the rap. He says it was only because he had four minutes to perform and it was cut for length, but I don't know. I think it would have been so amazing to shout out the political issues with the banks, the FDA, and cloning, all of which have been festering since 1999, 1998. That's the word for it. In the it. middle of the inauguration. Yeah. But sadly, it was cut for time. 
But now, Jordan, the question on everyone's lips, will we get another new Radicals album or seven to ten of them, in fact? <laughs> yes. You know what? Quite possibly. Though we might have to wait for Greg Alexander to die. <laughs> uh, no, don't get ideas, anyway. It's, it's very Salinger-esque. Yes. Uh, Greg Alexander says that he's recorded and mastered somewhere between seven to ten full-length follow-ups oh. to Maybe You've Been Brainwashed, too. But unfortunately, we'll probably never get to hear them. He quotes the poet laureate Sting, music is its own reward, before adding, in that context, it's been its own reward for me. I still scheme sometimes about the idea of maybe putting records out. Maybe after I die, I'll put them out every year. He told Rolling Stone that he's had countless offers from labels promising him, quote, small fortunes to get new radicals back together, but he never legitimately considered doing it. And you know what? It's probably for the best that he didn't. In a great piece he wrote for GQ, the journalist Al Shipley writes, By breaking up and almost immediately hitting it big, New Radicals saved themselves the perhaps inevitable fate of struggling to produce a follow-up and getting dropped from their label like so many of their contemporaries. They never jumped at opportunities to play on cruise ships with Sugar Ray or tweet their way back into relevance like Eve Six. <laughs> Ooh. And as we touched on earlier, the same political concerns that alienated some of Greg Alexander's contemporaries arguably added to the song's shelf life. In his piece for Stereogum that we keep quoting, Stuart Berman writes, quote, the album's key concerns, financial insecurity, environmental degradation, media addiction, corporate dominance, and especially top of mind for a lapsed Jehovah's Witness like Alexander, spiritual emptiness have only become more oppressive in the intervening years. It's easy to look back at the late 90s as a more innocent time, a pre-9-11 era where geopolitical turmoil didn't feel so viscerally omnipresent in the everyday lives of most North Americans, and social media didn't exist to amplify our anxieties. In retrospect, maybe you've been brainwashed to proto-woke progress prognostications were the original Twitter news alerts, rudely interrupting the happiest days of our lives to inform us we're all doomed. That's a great, great insight. But in the end, most importantly, you get what you give is still a great song. It's a banger. And that's arguably what matters most. Alexander continued to advocate for the power of music in an interview with Rolling Stone recently saying, at the end of the day, people hear you on the radio, on the drive home, after they just got their heart broke, and they have a feel for your song, maybe. And that's what really matters. Yeah, I like this song. I think it's as inspiring. And um, the thing I don't like about it is the rap, is the bridge. <laughs> I just think it's... So you like the Biden version. <laughs> Release the Biden uh, The Biden edit. Yeah. Um, no, I like this song. I think it's, it's a great thing to tell people, don't give up. You've got the music in you. And it's not just aimed at musicians. Like, everybody's got... You've got a reason to yeah, live. Yeah, everybody's got some kind of music in them that they should be letting out it's a good thing to hear <laughs> and uh i support anyone with uh, an unending amount of scorn for the record industry so good on you greg alexander come on the show and i don't know walk us through more sordid stories of your time in the trenches anyway <laughs> thanks folks for listening this has been too much information i'm alex heigl and i'm jordan runtog we'll catch you next time Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule If you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit MortonBuildings.com and start your construction process. With superior materials, craftsmanship, best-in-class warranty, Morton Buildings are made to last for generations. At Morton, the difference is in the details. From their cutting-edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field, they are dedicated to surpassing expectations. Their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years, and Morton Buildings is 100% employee-owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process, starting before the walls even go up. Visit mortonbuildings.com to get started today. 